do they preach the gospel there? That question was asked of a family who had left the Calvary Chapel and began to attend the church I was serving in Borrego Springs. Do they preach the gospel there? I think it's safe to say that question was whether or not we preached what I would call a lowest common denominator message that Jesus' execution on the cross appeased God's wrath and paid the penalty for our sins. For many, that is the gospel. And yet, in the first four books of the New Testament, those called gospels, Jesus uses that word himself a grand total of one time. And that makes me wonder rather facetiously if some people today would ask whether or not Jesus preached the gospel. Certainly the good news that Jesus proclaimed was not focused on himself and how his death would appease God's wrath, but rather the good news of the life-giving, life-liberating kingdom of God into which he invites us to live. The apostle Paul in Galatians 3.8 claims that the gospel was actually proclaimed ages and ages before Jesus' life and death. Paul writes, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would, gen uh, would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. Isn't that surprising that Paul makes the claim that the gospel was first declared in Genesis to Abraham? Today, as we explore our reading from the second book of the Old Testament, Exodus, I would hope that we might broaden our understanding of God's saving work, which we sometimes call the gospel. Some historical context for you just before our reading began this morning in chapter 1, verse 6 of Exodus, it tells how the sons of Jacob who'd all come to Egypt during a severe famine, had all died. Now, as resident aliens in Egypt, the Hebrews were reproducing prolifically. 
Of the 70 Hebrew ancestors that originally came into Egypt during that famine, 600,000 will leave. That increase, of course, from 70 to 600,000 reveals how much time had passed since the Hebrews had come to Egypt. And scholars speculate that it was somewhere between 100 and 400 years. I would lean in the later direction. But as we heard in verse 8, there is a new pharaoh in town. We also heard how this pharaoh felt threatened by the burgeoning Israelite minority. Egypt, he fears, may become a minority majority. And so he schemes to slow the Hebrew birth rates by conscripting these foreigners into slavery. But even under these bitter conditions, the Hebrews continue to multiply. So Pharaoh devises a plot to eradicate this threat, male infanticide. Had genocide been his aim, Pharaoh would have ordered that all Hebrews be killed, but then he would lose his massive slave workforce. A shrewd operator, Pharaoh entreats two midwives, Shipra and Pua, to secretly kill male Hebrew children upon their birth. But Shipra and Pua resist this dictate. And so their act of civil disobedience leads Pharaoh to execute Plan B, an executive order that all his people participate in the ethnic cleansing of male Hebrew children by tossing them into the Nile. And so for the first time, biblically speaking, but certainly not the only time, a nativity story emerges within a hopeless and oppressive situation. A nameless child is born who is in immediate danger just because of his birth. Does that sound familiar? And then three months pass, and his mother, who's been keeping it a secret, must find another way of salvation for the child. She, she builds an ark, and she places it and her infant son into the Nile. And uh, the baby's older sister, Miriam, is to keep an eye on the boat. Ironies begin to pile up when Pharaoh's daughter comes to the river and, and finds the baby in that ark. She knows he's a Hebrew, and yet she ignores her father's edict to pitch him into the Nile. A child ignoring their parents. Where have I heard that before? Miriam witnesses her brother's rescue and offers to find a nursemaid 
for the child. And Pharaoh's daughter ends up paying the child's own mother to nurse her child. What a great story. Another irony is that Pharaoh's daughter has the honor of naming this child. And so she settles upon Moses, for she drew him out of the water. And what do you think that might foreshadow? Red Sea. But do you notice that God really has yet to make an appearance in the story? That will come at the the burning bush when Moses is older. But like other biblical stories, there are coincidences sometimes that suggest that God is invisibly at work. In this story, God is much more remote. So in Moses' case, it is the courageous civil disobedience of several women instead of the leading of the invisible God. The two midwives, Moses' mother and sister, even Pharaoh's daughter, act as savior figures in this story. There is no indication whatsoever that they were acting in response to God's leading, that God said, protect this child who will be my instrument of salvation. That's not there. But without these women, would there even be an exodus? So the gospel of salvation, according to Exodus, begins with acts of defiance as these five women resist an all-powerful Pharaoh. Because of their courage, God will later be able to use Moses as the instrument of salvation for the Hebrew people. I'm drawing attention to this to highlight how this story of salvation begins with the apparent absence of God and how the story unfolds as God later uses the acts of these righteous women to bring about the salvation of the Hebrews through Moses. And I want us to notice when we're looking at this story that this act of salvation is not some sort of atonement for the people's sin, but rather it is to liberate an oppressed people from life-crushing bondage, which is a message that actually coheres to Jesus's proclamation of the kingdom of God. Still, I think it's wise for us, instead of ignoring God's absence from the story, to see and to understand that a sense of God's absence is often part of our own salvation story. As Eugene Peterson writes, it is a reminder that belief in God does not exempt us 
from feelings of abandonment by God. And that praising God does not inoculate us against doubts about God. Have we not had those moments where we implore, God, where are you? Cruel divorces, grim diagnoses, phone calls that sock us in the stomach with news that we cannot bear. Have we not questioned God's whereabouts when our adult children struggle with emotional traumas that we are powerless to heal? Or when we plead with God to help us overcome an addiction or our inability to keep our anger in check or simply to intervene and stop the hurt that we're feeling. Don't we lament how God seems absent? Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, we cannot ignore our own experiences of God-forsakenness without lopping off whole parts of our lives where we feel that God has cut us adrift in a rudderless boat. The Bible's story of salvation does not ignore that reality. And neither should we. As Peterson also writes, any understanding of God that does not take into account God's silence is a half-truth. So if our testimony to God's faithfulness excludes times when we've felt deserted by God, then our witness will sound trite to anyone who knows that life's challenges are infinitely and magnificently and excruciatingly more complex than can be resolved with some emaciated rendition of the gospel, which reduces salvation to some simplistic formula where we say the sinner's prayer and wait for heaven. Here, I think, is the true beginning of the gospel. When we realize that a sense of God's absence is not necessarily a divine judgment upon our lives. Indeed, experiences of God's absence can prepare us to embrace those redeeming moments when we are swept out of the water and adopted by God. But notice that according to Exodus, even in God's apparent absence, we can be faithful. We can be as faithful as these women who resisted the orders 
of an authoritarian tyrant. We can co cooperate with God's saving purposes even in advance. And this scripture that we claim, the gospel that we discover in both the older and the newer testaments affirms that God can swaddle our pain and terror-filled histories in the future purposes that we have yet to perceive. Thanks be to God. Amen.